Hello and welcome to the i3 Insights podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. As you probably know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. The following recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 Investment Podcast. This is Daniel Grioli, editor of Market Fox, and today we have a very special guest. It is James O'Shaughnessy. He is the Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, and he's also the author of an investment classic. It's the Quantitative Strategy Bible, What Works on Wall Street, now in its fourth edition. We're very happy to have James with us today on the podcast. James, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Daniel. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks again for, for joining us. So we, we usually start talking about how our guests got into the investment business and how it all started. Um, take us to the beginning. Who was James O'Shaughnessy before he became James O'Shaughnessy? <laughs> uh, well, he was probably Jimmy O'Shaughnessy to most of his older relatives, um, a name I haven't heard in a long time. Um, so my investment uh, interests started uh, early in life uh, as a teenager. Um, I came from a family where my grandfather had done uh, very well uh, in the oil business, and um, he was very philanthropic, and during his own lifetime, gave away about 95% of his uh, money, uh, but that still left a sizable foundation uh, after he had died. Um, and my father and my uncles and aunts were the trustees, and they would have annual meetings uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota, where I was born and raised. Um, and after I got past age 16, I got to sit in on the dinners, which was always fun. Um, and uh, one particular dinner really was what started my interest in investing, and that was a dinner in which my father and my uncle John got into a fairly heated argument about a particular stock. I think it was IBM. And as I listened to their argument, it was all about the personalities of the executives of IBM. It was all about what they thought about IBM's business strategy, et cetera. And I kind of sat there listening and, and thought to myself, well, I don't think that's the way you should look at it. I think you should look at it based on kind of the underlying uh, metrics or things like P.E. ratio or what's the dividend uh, yield, those types of things. Um, and so I uh, started to read kind of just generally. Um, of course, back then, Ben Graham was, you know, sort of obligatory. Um, and then I started uh, to go to a research library uh, to kind of look up stocks. And uh, that's, that's how I got the bug. Um, and uh, that's actually uh, what uh, ultimately turned me into a quant. Although I did not start, I wasn't. I, that didn't come out of my uh, mother's womb as a quant. <laughs> uh, I had I, I had to learn a little bit uh, to make that happen. Well, it sounds like there's some interesting stories there on on your evolution into a quant. <clears throat> 
from what you've described, you're always looking for evidence to base your decisions on. But what prompted you to to make the uh, the decision to focus on quantitative strategies? So what prompted me to to really become a 100% a quantitative investor uh, was reflecting on my own success and failure, more failure, uh, in my early investment endeavors. Um, and I was very similar to other people. Um, you know, I had a cousin give me a hot tip. And uh, rather than uh, just look at the numbers and, and – uh, and make a decision based on that, and indeed trying to make a decision based on a single stock, I think is foolish. Because um, you know you 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 could get everything right on the number side, and that stock might just be the exception to the rule. Anyway, um, so I started reading a lot of early research on the efficacy of um, you know rules-based systems versus uh, what they call clinical, uh, that is where an expert makes uh, a choice uh, based on a variety of factors. And a lot of people don't know this. It's actually featured in my book, What Works on Wall Street. But a lot of this research started as early as the late 40s, early 50s. Um, and of course, it wasn't limited to just the stock market. Uh, but Essentially, the, the research was categorical, and, and it found that rules-based systems that were methodically applied always did better than the kind of got-a-hunch, bet-a-bunch type of investment decision-making. And so I sort of married that with work I'd been doing on looking at the Dow Jones Industrial Average high-dividend stocks, um, which known affectionately in the U.S. as dogs of the Dow. Um, and in fact, I, I wrote an article for Barron's uh, in 1993 where I took the Dow back to uh, its, uh, its uh, birth as a 30-stock index in the late 20s. Um, and I started looking at those numbers and my own behavior in the market. And I realized, you know, we're all the same. Uh, making decisions based on uh, gut feeling, making decisions based on something you heard today, etc., as I reviewed, because I'm, I'm a big journal keeper, so I reviewed the journals that I'd kept about things that I'd invested in, and, and, and I really saw that I would be vastly better off if I just found a good set of investment rules that were empirically proven over long periods of time. Thus, my uh, look at the Dow Jones uh, dogs, thus my, my books starting with Invest Like the Best and uh, leading to What Works on Wall Street. That, that's uh, very interesting. I'm, I'm curious about one thing you said there. So you, you, you mentioned that you kept a journal and looking back over the journal was what helped you to realize that a quantitative rules-based approach would be better. Did you quit discretionary investing cold turkey or was there a process of committing to be more rules-based and then slipping and then reaffirming the commitment and slipping until finally, no, I just have to do it? How did that process work? 
That's really a good question. Um, actually, it did it it did go the the gradual way. Um, I uh, one of the things that is really good about keeping journals uh, about a variety of things, but especially in investing, is when you're making the decisions and also detailing them in a journal. Uh, you are in the full-bloodied world of now, and the world of now involves your emotions to an extent that you really can't see when you're in the middle of things. When you go back and you revisit what you wrote, say, six weeks, six months later, you're able to see with far greater clarity how emotional you actually were at the time. Because when you're reviewing it later, obviously those emotions aren't present. But when you're writing it, they are. And so I advocate that people who aren't sure if they want to be rules-based could do very well by, by writing down and being honest about uh, their, their choices. But to answer your question specifically, um, yes, I, I, uh, I went uh, uh, along a line of following rules-based systems, uh, but overriding those rules. So I actually wrote a piece about, um, about <laughs> one of my big mistakes uh, going into the crash of 1987, in which I did have a rules-based system, one I no longer use, by the way, um, uh, in place uh, and that had led me to, uh, to accumulate a large, in fact, the largest position of put options, obviously giving you the right to profit if stocks go down. Um, on an index called the OEX, which was very similar to the U.S. S&P 500. Um, and uh, the day before the crash, I emotionally, and I must say very emotionally, because people who weren't around or were too young to remember, the, the, the day before the crash was scary as well and uh, saw kind of downward movements that were pretty much unseen at people uh, for people at that time. Um, and I emotionally completely overrided the rules I was following and uh, sold all those puts. Uh, I didn't lose money on them, but I didn't make money on them either. And then, of course, the crash came, and uh, I, I was able to see how much uh, that actually cost me, and it was a small fortune. And that really focused my mind on, you know what? Your emotions, as good as they are in every other aspect of life, you know, in your family, in, in things that you have passions about, uh, are fantastic. And in the world of investing, you know, they are your greatest enemy. Um, and that was pretty much um, – and there were a few other instances prior to that. But that was the one that said, okay, I'm done. I'm now just going to be following rules, and that's the way I'm going to do it. That's a great story. Thanks for sharing that with us. Uh, sure. So we, we talked about your early research, looking at the Dow, the dogs of the Dow, and then how did that morph into writing What Works on Wall Street? So I, the first book that I ever wrote um, also happens to be the title of my son Patrick's uh, podcast, Invest Like the Best. Um, and in that book, I, I tried to show the reader how they could clone their favorite manager by not looking at the names or what the manager said, but rather by taking the manager's portfolio, putting it onto a database, uh, and looking at the biggest deviations in terms of factors 
uh, for that manager's portfolio, and then using those factors to screen the database for stocks that had very similar factor profiles. Um, and at the time, I was using the Value Line uh, Investment Survey database. And as I was doing it and, and finding in real time uh, some really interesting results, uh, the question became and was very natural. The next question is, well, okay, everyone talks about, you know, hey, buy stocks with low PEs or no, buy stocks with the biggest growth rate. You know, we could go through the whole litany of what you'll often hear uh, from a manager uh, talking about the best types of stocks to buy. And then I thought, well, I, is there any long-term proof that any of this really exists? Now, of course, this is pre-internet, so I had to go to the library. And I did, in fact, find, you know, obviously, um, uh, th this was just as this stuff was getting published, but some of the, the papers by French Fama, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but there was very little from a practitioner's point of view that looked at as many factors over as long a period of time as I, we could possibly analyze. And we can come back to that because I think that's very important. And so I just said, well, I've got to do this research. Um, and, um, you know, here's a place where passion and emotion were great because I had an underlying passion for knowing and wanting to know, uh, you know, does, does any of the uh, or, or do any of the uh, schools of investing actually have evidence that they work over long periods of time? And so um, I went to the folks at Standard & Poor's CompuStat, and after a lot of back and forth, got them to give me their full data set, um, first on an annual basis, and then we used monthly, uh, for as long as they had it, um, and did the, the research, uh, which uh, resulted in the first edition of What Works on Wall Street. That's a, that's a great story, and I couldn't help but think, as you were telling that story, whether you had in mind some kind of, of product or use for the information or whether you were just purely researching it because, as you say, passion and drive and curiosity and wanting to find out. Because I, one of the things I've observed in our industry is that many times people think of the product first and then they do the research afterwards to support it. Uh, there isn't a lot of basic research where people are just actually trying to discover ideas um, and then see where it goes. So I sort of want to understand how that process worked for you. Was it about the idea or did you have an endpoint in mind? Or You, you know, Daniel, uh, it was entirely about the idea. Um, I was just so um, driven by the, I, I was, you know, I was almost compulsive about it. By I and and I've been this way in other things too. I'm I'm an inveterate researcher, and and I just in many things that I'm interested in, I really want to seek out and find the most empirical evidence that I can find because I think really that's the only way to form a well-formed opinion on anything is to have evidence and data to back up uh, what uh, you're you're saying. So anyway, it was absolutely originally just driven by my singular need and desire to know. Um, and um, I had been a consultant to large pension plans 
And then, of course, as the work uh, for What Works was uh, getting done, um, I obviously got the idea, you know, what I really ought to be doing is uh, offering uh, these types of portfolios to uh, the public as an as a active stock manager. Uh, but uh, the the initial impulse, uh, just like it was with the the uh, the the dogs of the Dow, was I I just wanted to know. Mm-hmm. That's that's uh, I think that's a trait common to a lot of really good investors that insatiable curiosity and that drive to learn, and um, it's it's an important characteristic. I'm I'm thinking back to to when you'd done this research in your place. As you pointed out, there wasn't really that much applied quantitative factor research out there that people could use. Were you tempted to keep it to yourself? Uh, what what made you decide to publish it as a book? That's a that's a great question, and actually, there's a really funny story that uh, goes along with that. Um, I, I, in my younger days, and, and maybe a bit even today, tended to be a bit of an idealist about information. Um, I was one of the earliest adopters uh, to the online world when you still had to pay for it, things like CompuServe, and uh, many of your guests would probably be too young to even remember those days. Uh, but um, I'm, I'm passionate about people being informed, and uh, at the time, I I I thought that once people got this information my gosh they would they would use it diligently. Now obviously I read a lot more psychology after that to see why that isn't the case. Um but it was always my intention to publish it because I believed that uh, a level playing field was going to always be the best for all parties concerned. Now uh, by that time, I, I had uh, begun uh, managing uh, money, and um, I had a relationship with a large uh, brokerage uh, in the United States, and uh, some of their senior executives basically tried to convince me that let's just keep this private and uh, use it as proprietary information. And... Uh, you know, obviously, uh, there was uh, there was some attractive uh, nature to that uh, at the time, but um, I, I decided, obviously, <laughs> that um, no, I felt it was far more important uh, to publish, um, and I had the inkling now, now kind of the certainty um, that uh, you you could give people the keys to the kingdom, and human nature would preclude. Uh, the vast majority from actually having the ability emotionally, back to emotions, to stick with strategies. Because as I saw in the research, no strategy, no matter how successful it is, works every year. And and there's a fundamental mismatch between uh, us as temporal creatures uh, and what we find works well in investing. And And by that I mean... The best strategies that you know have fantastic uh, rolling ten-year batting averages always suffer. You know, in many cases, three individual years out of those ten where they do poorly. And unfortunately, given given our recency bias and given the fact that you know we live in the here and now, and uh, what happens to be going on now is what we overweight in our decision-making uh, framework. And and so. 
what happens is you see people abandon even empirically supported strategies that are empirically supported in some cases over 80 years simply because they had a bad quarter or bad year. And you also see what I think is a huge crime against uh, total returns, which is people making choices based on a manager's performance over a single year period, which I think is insane because that's mostly noise and not signal. But even when you get out to three years, that is, um, that is not an optimal uh, time to try to make good choices on the efficacy of a manager. And yet, given the nature we live, given the nature of the day-to-day aspect of life and of information flow and all of that, uh, we're sort of programmed to make those types of choices. And I think that it would be and is very, very difficult for people not to make choices that way, even though every bit of empirical evidence that I've been able to get my hands on shows that those are the you know, most inappropriate time periods to try to make decisions on. Now, others will argue, well, you know, so you're saying that uh, the, the only way to uh, invest then is quantitative. No, not at all. I mean, if you look at Warren Buffett, to take the most famous investor, he had periods where for five years, even longer, he did very much worse than the S&P 500. And if people were making short-term decisions, they would be able to invent a narrative, right? Because that's what happens. If you, it's like in my office where I am right now, I have no Bloomberg, I have no TV, I have no ticker going, because uh, that's all noise. And what happens is people invent narratives uh, to fit what's happened. So should the market uh, hit a speed bump like it did in the U.S. uh, a couple of weeks ago? Well, suddenly we have narratives galore and, you know, whomever had been bearish uh, gets invited on uh, financial TV um, and it all sounds so compelling. And yet you really need to be able to stand back and say that there's nothing here. It's just noise. And these are invented stories. But again, back to Buffett. If you had looked at his longer-term record and, and said, you know what, this long-term record and the way he actually um, uh, describes how he makes choices makes sense, you might have had the ability to stick with him even when you had those five-year periods where he didn't do as well as an index. I, I think that's a, a great point that you make there that you, essentially you can hide your ideas in plain sight because they're they're hard for people to stick with, and I think that's true of, of a lot of strategies. Um, just coming back a little further on this idea of the book and sharing the research, did any unexpected positives result from putting your ideas out there? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, as I mentioned, uh, at the time my firm was O'Shaughnessy Capital Management, and it was a, uh, you know, a startup uh, type company and we didn't have very many people working for us and just based on the ideas expressed in what works on wall street uh, most of the initial money that we raised was incoming in other words it was people who had read the book and sought us out rather than the other way around um, 
So certainly that was a huge benefit. Um, it, it helped. And it's kind of funny. Uh, had, had you been sort of thinking about it, you might have come to that conclusion, right? Well, gosh, if I put this out there, kind of like that old saying, you know, if you build it, they will come. Uh, but there are so many counterexamples to that uh, that you really can't put your faith in that, and yet that's exactly what happened. Um, and also, uh, something that I was especially proud of was uh, the number of pre-email uh, actual letters and phone calls and then post-email, the emails and things that I would uh, get uh, from people who really said, you know, look, uh, I, this really changed the way I invest. And what was really interesting for me, it was like these were people who were classic do-it-yourselfers, um, and they weren't going to come to O'Shaughnessy uh, Asset Management to manage their money, and that's fine. I think that you know if I can contribute something that even a small minority can take advantage of and do significantly better with their investments, that's a, I've done a public good there, and it's good for the, the, the public commons. That's a, a very good story and a very good attitude to have. Uh, we need more people thinking that way in finance. I'm thinking back as we're talking about the book to when I, I first read it. I actually read it on vacation in Tasmania. And it was very interesting. I oh, you are you are dedicated. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my wife will never let me forget the fact that I read um, <laughs> The Black Swan on our honeymoon. Oh, dear. <laughs> So, yeah, I'll never uh, I finally have met somebody who's my match. <laughs> but one of the things I found very interesting in the book is the the beginning where you explain why you've done the research the way you have. And there's a lot of discussion there about base rates. And everything that follows in the book is essentially a collection of base rates. Why Correct. do you think base rates are useful in answering investment questions, and how can people make greater use of them in their investment process? That's a great question. Um, so, so base rates are batting averages, right? Uh, what we do with base rates is say, for all rolling one, three, five, seven, and ten-year periods, how often does this strategy beat its benchmark? By what magnitude? You know, what kind of uh, of uh, consistency, if you will, is there to a strategy? And I think that that is the ultimate reason why base rates are so important. You could have, for example, I haven't found many, but I have found some strategies that can have just incredible, uh, say, five or ten year periods. But when you look at them over the full spectrum of time, you see that those are the exception, not the rule. So their base rates over those rolling five and 10 year periods would be very poor, right? So they would be beating the underlying relevant benchmark, let's say, you know, less than half the time. That's a strategy that is inherently not stable and, in my opinion, not usable. What you want to find are strategies that have very, very high uh, base rates for beating the benchmark, and the longer your time frame, the better. So I always look at 10-year. A lot of folks look at five-year. Um, but when you have a strategy that, say, beats its benchmark, let's say, 75% of all rolling five-year periods and 95% of all rolling 10-year periods, 
number one, it should give you a great deal of confidence when that strategy isn't working. Number two, it preloads you with the knowledge that, let's go back to five-year, 25% of all rolling five-year periods, that strategy doesn't beat its benchmark. So rather than be despondent, if you have the information at your fingertips that, well, yeah, I, I know that 25% of these five-year periods, this particular strategy is not going to excel. It might help you emotionally than if you didn't have that information at all. Um, so I, I think that base rates obviously are probably the most important thing that you can look at in investing. And interestingly enough, they're, they're used extensively uh, in other industries, uh, the insurance industry, for example. What's the base rate uh, for people of a particular uh, level of health uh, and uh, when, for death within the next five years? Uh, obviously, if they did not avail themselves of those base rates, um, they would write a lot of bad policies um, and, and you know, go out of business. Um, and so I believe that the base rate conveys so much important information um, that it really lets the investor uh, sink their teeth into, you know, just empirical fact. And that can be a bedrock and of great use, particularly when the strategy is underperforming. Because that's the other thing that base rates show you. Um, you know, yeah, there are some strategies, very few, but some that near 100% base rate um, uh, on all rolling 10-year periods. But that gets into the idea that, well, okay, that's, you know, that's on data that begins in 1963, and for some of the uh, strategies uh, in the fourth edition of What Works, we use the CRISP data, which is the Center for Research and Security Prices maintained by the University of Chicago. Um, that goes back to the 20s, but there's only a few things you're really able to study there, things like momentum and dividend yield, et cetera. Um, but since you don't really have the fullness of time in every single type of market environment, uh, you have to say you have to take a 100% 10-year base rate with a grain of salt. What you'd rather say is, wow, over almost all 10-year periods that we've seen historically, this works. Um, and and like I say, that type of information is, is just vital, absent, uh, absent it, what are you supposed to make up your mind about? You, because believe me, when a, a strategy that you've chosen to use, uh, if you don't have the base rate information and it starts going south, you, you, you have almost nothing to hang your hat on. Um, and the narratives will all be against you. And they will all suggest to you that uh, that strategy might have worked in the past, but it doesn't work anymore. Um, and it would make it, in my opinion, virtually impossible to stay the course. I think that's a, a very important observation you've just made, uh, the importance of base rates in helping people to set appropriate expectations and then those expectations helping them to stick to the strategy. I think that's a, there's a very important lesson in that. In terms of the some of the factors that you looked at in the book, uh, one of the things that stood out to me was 
that uh, in different editions of the book, as you've incorporated more data, the best performing uh, value factor, for example, has changed. I think in the, the earlier editions, it was price to sales, and in the later editions, it's EV to EBITDA. Noticing how the performance of factors change through time now that you've you've gone through four editions of the book, how does that inform your thinking and the way you construct a, a quantitative investment strategy? Yeah, that's that, that that's a, a great example of uh, through iterative uh, uh, knowledge, uh, you gain a perspective that you might not have originally. Uh, of course, had I had sort of perfect foresight when I wrote the first edition of the book, I would have contemplated the idea that whatever individual factor is going to be come out on top during that particular time period, even if it's a long period of time, uh, that might change and might change dramatically even if you add an additional five or ten years. Um, and in fact, that is what we found. Uh, so it changed the way that we did the research. The original research was done on a on a uh, annual rebalance, um, and in the most recent edition of the book, we have what we call a dynamically rebalanced portfolio, which is uh, we set a, a group of holdings on a monthly basis um, and aggregate all 12 months together. Um, and in fact, that's the way we actually manage money. The second thing that that uh, that I learned was. All of these value factors work, um, but the horse race is going to change whoever happens to be the one that, that uh, finishes the race uh, in first place. So what would happen if we didn't use just one value factor, but rather used a composite of the value factors that we had found to have a high degree of efficacy uh, over long periods of time? And in fact, that's what we did and what appears in the fourth edition. So for example, we now, rather than say, uh, do anything based on a price to sales or EBITDA to enterprise value, we have a value composite, which includes price to sales, EBITDA to enterprise value, price to earnings, free cash flow to enterprise value, and a thing called shareholder yield, which is dividend yield plus buyback uh, yield uh, for the previous 12 months. And what we found is you know, really quite interesting. Um, that particular composite uh, tends to beat any single individual component 85% of all rolling 10-year periods. So we have a 15% chance that one of the single components is going to do better than the value composite. But more importantly, we have an 85% chance that the composite is going to be the best um, indicator of value. Also, what it uh, allows us as investors to do is to look at the entire balance sheet, right? Um, you know the old joke about uh, PE ratios, and they were a company was going to be hiring a new CFO, and they they brought them in and asked them uh, one question: What's two plus two? And the first two people in said four, uh, but the third uh, person who came in, a a, a woman uh, who had a great uh, pedigree, 
uh, was asked the question, and she answered, well, what number did you have in mind? <laughs> uh, things, things like earnings can be manipulated very easily, as most of us know. Um, but when you, when you look at the entire balance sheet from the uh, bottom line to the top line to the, the middle of the balance sheet, as our value composite does, we think that you get a better, uh, con- uh, a better read on the true value uh, or true cheapness of a particular stock or group of stocks. Um, and we have found that that is true with non-value factors, things like momentum, for example, um, things like financial strength or earnings quality. Uh, so we use composites for each of these uh, uh, metrics, and we use them in uh, in concert with one another uh, to to derive the portfolios that we invest in. I think that's that's some ex- excellent ad- advice there. And I'm I'm thinking as you were talking of a paper that uh, one of your colleagues wrote. It's up on your firm's website about price to book and the danger of relying solely on price to book. I know that it's a very popular factor with academics because it doesn't have very much turnover and it. It's amenable to analysis, but uh, it's interesting to see how a composite can can really outperform such a a simple one-dimensional factor. Yeah, and in fact, uh, in the most recent edition of What Works, uh, where we actually had evidence, uh, or excuse me, data going back to the 1920s, uh, one of our findings was, you know, between the 20s and 1963, when my original uh, research data set started, uh, low price to book didn't work at all. Um, and if you think about it, you can see pretty easily why. Uh, stocks with very, very low price to book ratios, it's also an excellent uh, 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 benchmark for the risk of uh, bankruptcy for a company. Um, and during the 1930s, all of those stocks with low price to books, or not all, but many, did go bankrupt. And so I think that when we looked at the full data set um, from the 1927 period through uh, 2009, which is the end for the current edition of the book, uh, it informed us that, you know, this is this is one of those instances where um, a big, big chunk of time, this this factor didn't work. And then, of course, uh, the paper also goes into all the other reasons why price to book currently might not be a good thing to use. Um, you know, I- I- the idea of book value is very fitting for industrial-type companies and, and material-type companies, but not at all for a technology company or a healthcare company or many of the names that now uh, might make excellent investments. And um, so I'm sure that – or I- I'll be sure to get you a link to that uh, that paper. I don't want to get too deep into the nerd weeds here. Uh, but uh, I think uh, people who are who, who are interested in, in digging deep uh, would love to read that paper because the other thing that we've got to remember about price to book is that many of the uh, indexes like the Russell uh, 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 1000, 2000, 3000 value uh, use price to book very prominently. Um, and so one of the things we found, uh, if you 
go through our list in our composite, you see price to book is not one of the factors that we consider. And that's because of the data that uh, suggested to us that these uh, that the others that we are using are, are superior. Um, but, you know, price to book can also have a great five, seven, eight, ten year period where it works very, very well. Um, and um, so it leads us back yet again to the idea that using a composite of uh, value factors is going to be a better uh, or give you a better uh, chance to uh, uh, gauge true value than any single factor on its own. Mm -hmm. uh, very interesting. So I'm just wondering, have you looked to see if what works on Wall Street works in other markets? Yes, we have. Um, so we have a relationship with the Royal Bank of Canada where we have been managing funds for them for 20 years. And they're named the O'Shaughnessy Funds uh, in Canada. And that was the original research that we did uh, when they uh, contacted us and, and said they were interested in, in having us uh, some advise some of the mutual funds. Obviously, we had to run the research on Canadian securities and, and uh, confirm that it worked there as well. Indeed, it did, uh, which led us to buying international data sets um, and found that, indeed, it worked quite well uh, in virtually all of the uh, other countries we tested it in. Uh, there are some anomalous uh, countries like Japan, for example, um, where over long periods of time, yes, it works quite well, but there are significant sub-periods where it does not. Um, and I think that uh, market structure and uh, uh, those types of more technical uh, things might be the reason for that. But in the overwhelming majority of auction-based stock markets, um, the, the uh, strategies that worked well here in the United States worked well universally. I used to say what works on Wall Street works on Bay Street, works in the city of London, uh, et cetera. And we've looked at Australia, for example, and found that it worked there as well. Um, and uh, so it shouldn't surprise, really, because it's a bit like, well, these are kind of simple rules of economics. And uh, we shouldn't be surprised if they work very well all around the world where auction markets are free, auction uh, pricing markets, and uh, where human beings are doing the pricing. Um, so one thing I would add is that in many cases, uh, they actually work better in markets outside of the U.S. And, and my... My hypothesis there is that the U.S. is one of the biggest, is the biggest market, uh, stock market in the world, and therefore probably is a little bit more efficient than other markets. Um, because we've also seen that within the U.S., um, the, the value factors, momentum factors, uh, et cetera, that we use in selecting securities work absolutely the best in the microcap space. And we we define microcap as much smaller than many managers. We say 50 million to 200 million. Um, so we're really looking at tiny companies. But when you look at it there, uh, wow, the the amount of excess alpha down there is, is, is huge. And again, not 
too surprising because those companies in many circumstances aren't followed by analysts. Um, if they are followed by an analyst, it tends to be one or two. Um, so they have the greatest opportunity to provide alpha uh, significantly uh, o uh, over, say, a large cap company like a Microsoft or a Google. Um, and um, that, you know, yes, that type of uh, outperformance both in, in microcaps here in the U.S., but then just in, in general shares outside of the U.S. Um, uh, works uh, slightly better than, than here in the United States. That's an interesting area of research, microcaps. It's another area I note your, your firms uh, publish some interesting papers on, which we'll add the links to the show notes. As a experienced quantitative analyst, I want to get your thoughts on an idea that I've had for a while, and that was to put together a checklist for quantitative backtests, because in this industry, there probably isn't a week that goes by where we don't see a backtest. And mm, yeah. I think we should take an evidence-based systematic approach to figuring out what is a good backtest and what is a bad backtest. So... Yeah. If I was to write this checklist, what would be some suggested items you'd give me to put on it? Oh, well, you know, there's a lot. And I've actually written a piece um, that um, I will make sure you get a, a copy of called The Power of Backtesting Investment Strategies. Um, the, 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 the basic rule um, should be, in my opinion, that uh, you should all, – all methods that are tested should be explicit – by that I mean they should be absolutely spelled out so that you and everyone else looking at that back test know exactly what was tested. Um, these should be public rules. So you shouldn't be relying on any particular form of insight from an individual or a team or whatever. Um, they should obviously be reliable. Um, you can, I've seen a lot of back tests that uh, put together, uh, uh, the, you know, the oddest combinations. And, you know, if you do 100 of those, there's going to be one that works really well. Um, that doesn't mean it's efficacious. It means that chance led it to do better. Um, they should all be objective rules. There should be no ability for them to when, – when you see a lot of if but then statements in a backtest, I, I, it has been my experience – and that that is a a data mined portfolio uh, because um, they're they're fitting their data to what they observed over the time of their back test um, and that is the ultimate sin in back testing a an investment strategy. Um, you need a reliable database and and you really can't say enough about how important this is. Uh, there's a great article um, written by a guy by the name of um, Edward McQuarrie, and the title of the article is The Myth of 1926, How Much Do We Know About Long-Term Returns on U.S. Stocks? And in it, he talks about the limitations of the CRISP data set, uh, which only get more severe when you're looking at the CompuStat data set because it's less time. Um, and and I'm not saying that those the, the value of those tests is is nil. I'm saying that one should keep in mind 
that it faces limitations that you you definitely have to be mindful of uh, when when going into uh, a test. Now, obviously, you know, on the ch on your checklist should be checks for things like uh, data mining. Uh, mentioned earlier, if you see a lot of rules that get changed, uh, that uh, where the inference is drawn by the data that you're looking at that needs to go into the garbage can because it's absolutely useless. Um, you Simple things like you've got to be able to know that you would have known what the numbers you're looking at are when you say, when you have the computer looking at them, right? So if I don't really know December 31st um, uh, financials for a company until February or March, I can't use the published uh, uh, December 31st and use that date to start my test, right? Because I didn't know that. I wouldn't have known that. That's called uh, look-ahead bias. Uh, most tests that are conducted responsibly have long ago um, adjusted for look-ahead bias. Um, but you've got to be careful about that. Uh, there are some data sets that are point in time. So uh, by that, it, you, I mean they literally show you what was released at that point in time. So you actually can be insured that, yes, had you been a subscriber to that particular data set, you would have gotten that, uh, that update when, when you uh, can test against it. Um, the idea of survivorship bias is another thing that you really need to think a lot about. Um, survivorship bias is, uh, is a rookie error, but sometimes even sophisticated people forget about it. And that means, well, what about uh, that company that existed between 1964 and 1972 and then either got taken over or went bankrupt? Well, you've got to make sure that it's in the data set when you're doing the test. And that uh, calls for a complete and very robust research uh, data file of any company that existed and would have been available for selection uh, over the time that you're testing. It's got to be in the data set to make certain that, you know, if you've got a dog, it's got to get selected. And if you've got a, a one that does very well, well, that too has to be selected. And then, and then finally, I would say uh, there's uh, some very uh, uh, kind of detailed things that we call bootstrapping that I would recommend um, that people read <laughs> the paper because, again, we're getting into the, the deep nerd weeds there. But essentially, it allows you to seg uh, separate randomly uh, the various backtests into a bunch of subsets and uh, test them all on a random basis. And what you're looking for there is directional uh, in nature. By that I mean, you know, I see way too many back tests that say this particular strategy earned 15.39% with a standard deviation of 16.72. Uh, well, yeah, you're being honest that that particular back test did in fact do that. But that isn't the way one should think about a backtest. One should think about a backtest is in a directional nature. And are you finding, like, for example, if you look at momentum, we now have over 80 years of data on momentum. Are you finding directionally 
that when you slice and dice and randomize and do everything, that the difference between the best decile and the worst decile tends to persist. That's the more important uh, uh, piece of information that you want to find, and not so much that the overall, the specific number on a compounding uh, basis, uh, but rather magnitude, direction, and duration, and uh, consistency back to base rates. So I, I think that uh, a great checklist would include all of those, and then if we were going to get very technical, uh, some of these ideas like bootstrapping um, out of sample periods when you have them available. Um, so, for example, if you have access to the CRISP, which is 1927 through, say, 1963, and you have uh, uh, a, a, the CompuStat uh, data, which starts in 63, uh, hold out a period, either hold out that CRISP period or do a test from 1963 to 2003 and then use the period 2003 through 2018 as a holdout period. One of the problems there, of course, is that if it's a small holdout period, it could be an anomalous period, and you're not getting the kind of information that you you might like. But what you're getting, what you still should be getting, is there should be some uh, directionality to what you're testing. Um, and uh, that also works when you use this in-sample bootstrapping method. So lots of things to consider. Um, I'll make sure. In fact, I think I already sent you a link to this particular paper. Um, and um, I think, boy, I, a checklist for bad. I'm a big fan of checklists, period. And, and I often tell my non-quant friends, you know what? You don't have to be a quant. Just have a checklist. Does your security that you're purchasing meet these minimum criteria that you have for it? Um, and that can save people from a lot of mistakes. So just coming back to O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, you've recently uh, become chairman after handing over the chief executive uh, officer role to your son, Patrick. And many people know Patrick from the excellent work that he does on his podcast, Invest Like the Best, and from social media. Are you mm -hmm. still known as the author of What Works on Wall Street, or are you now Patrick's dad? <laughs> uh, I would view it as my greatest singular success if I was ever known simply as Patrick's dad. That would be one of the proudest days of my life, because it would have meant that uh, not only had he succeeded, but that I had succeeded as well. Uh, I'm still obviously pretty much known as the the uh, author of What Works on Wall Street, and, and Patrick, being a very good-natured person, put up with a lot of, uh, oh, are you Jim O'Shaughnessy's son? Uh, and uh, now I have, in fact, been asked, are you Patrick O'Shaughnessy's father? And, and I love it whenever I hear that, uh, because it means that he, he's doing well and, and uh, that uh, that's good for all of us and, and good for our clients. Um, uh, I uh, uh, moved Patrick into the chief executive officer position, A, because he's a brilliant guy, um, and I've had that externally confirmed <laughs> to avoid my own obvious confirmation bias as his proud father. 
so I take most of what I uh, think about my son from external sources, some of whom can be very brutal. Um, so those are the, the honest marks that I try to, to measure against. I'm a big believer in um, uh, continuity. I'm a big believer in in having a uh, plan in place for succession. Um, and one of the things that we really wanted the market and our clients to understand is we want to be uh, managing money for decades and decades to come. And Patrick is 33, I'm 57, I'm not going anywhere, I'm going to take after my grandfather and probably never retire. Um, and, you know, now I'm chairman and chief investment officer, so, uh, you know, any changes to the investment strategies at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, I'm ultimately the one who says yes or no. Uh, but Patrick's uh, incredibly in-depth knowledge of this space uh, married to uh, a very, very curious mind and uh, great researching capabilities. Uh, I just think uh, we've kind of got the best of all worlds now at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. Uh, one question that came up repeatedly, and I think this may have something to do with the debate between Cliff Asness and Rob Arnott, and that is factor timing. Is it possible? If it is, what should investors consider? If it isn't, how should they allocate to factors? So our research has found, and obviously we are not the be-all and end-all um, to uh, very smart people researching this, but we have found that we haven't uh, identified a model that was efficacious in trying to time factors. Um, and uh, that is not saying that there couldn't be one in existence. Uh, I have found just in generally speaking that trying to time anything, a factor, a market, uh, whatever, an economy, uh, is pretty much predestined to fail. Um, and, and there's a lot of reasons that would take us way too long to enumerate. Um, but so we're in the camp that says trying to time factors is folly. Uh, better to pay attention to base rates and uh, mix uh, according to your your risk budget, if you will, uh, a, a variety of strategies uh, that provide you the, the highest return with the best base rates at the most acceptable level of volatility that's right for you. And, you know, that's going to be different for everyone. Uh, if you're 75 years old and still investing in the stock market, you might have a very conservative approach, um, and uh, you're going to like uh, a factor profile to your portfolio that is uh, focused far more on very low draw drawdowns and um, et cetera. If you're a young kid, you might want nothing but microcap. But you know, some young people also are risk averse, so everyone is unique. Uh, find, find the group of uh, strategies that's right for you. Make sure those base rates are great and let it work. Okay, here's a question from uh, uh, a friend in the industry. And he said, I have a colleague that compares active managers to smart beta to determine alpha. Does that make sense? <laughs> 
of course it makes sense you, you know you can the the beauty of the the multiplicity of uh various indexes and products available uh i have a friend who writes and and one of his things was we're in the golden age of investing because of all of these opportunities now that comes with a downside right because uh it might be an embarrassment of riches uh and make it very difficult for you to do, decide. But no, I don't think that's unfair. Um, after all, if I have a value portfolio, like for example, we have one we call market leaders value, we contrast that against the Russell 1000 value, which is kind of a style portfolio, right? Um, so I think that's very fair. It's, it's funny you say that because I've had uh, the experience of talking to fund managers where you'll get the slide deck and you'll see the familiar slide with the inverted pyramid. And we start with a universe yeah. of 10,000 stocks and we, we apply filters or screens, which are essentially rules-based strategies. And we cut that 10,000 stocks down to 500. And then we let our analysts loose on the 500 and they pick the best 50. And I'll always ask them, that intermediate step where you've gone from 10,000 to 500, where, you, where you've essentially eliminated the majority of the universe have you ever compared mm. the performance of your portfolio to that step to see what you're adding over that because you've done 90 percent of the work in that step or more yeah and i'm always shocked at how few managers have even looked at that <laughs> you know uh i maybe it won't shock you but we do look at things like that um and uh in fact it led to a uh a white paper from our firm called uh, stocks you shouldn't own um and we we do in fact look at the names that we eliminate and how they perform and happy to say uh to date uh, they don't perform well very good so we have a, a cheeky question next. This, next, this is a bit cheeky. What happens if we all do what works? <laughs> I love that question. I ha I have gotten that question before, um, and 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 my answer also tends to be a bit cheeky. And that is, if we all do what works, it's because the machines have taken over and we are now their batteries, and they are making investment choices. <laughs> it, it it just. Uh, it just is inconceivable for human nature as we currently find human nature, um, uh, you know, version whatever, 5.0, whatever version you want to look at. Uh, it, is, it is designed so that we all won't do what works and for the same reasons that we've been discussing during our conversation. Um, so... If suddenly everything that everyone who's investing is doing what works, the machines have taken over. So, so you've heard it here first, listeners. James O'Shaughnessy <laughs> is saying that quantitative investing will be fine, absent a dystopian matrix-like future. <laughs> That's pretty much where I come down. <laughs> I like it. I like it a lot. So our final listener question comes from a mutual friend. Wes Gray at Alpha Architect, and uh, his question was, aside from being too early on robo-advice, and there's a story there which you might want to fill our listeners in on, <laughs> are there any other good idea, bad timing stories that you can share with us? 
<laughs> Wes is great. I think he's he's uh, in addition to being a fantastic researcher and offering a fantastic product lineup. Uh, he his phrases are wonderful. I think the the uh, title of the uh, podcast he did with Patrick was "Compound Your Face Off." Uh, um, yeah, so. So the robo-advisor, we called Netfolio, and we launched uh, the uh, project in 1999, uh, about 18 years ahead of uh, all the robos that we see now. And and we did it, of course, at exactly the wrong time as the Internet was collapsing. And if we had a long period of time, it would be a really great story because it illustrates how even a quant who had written a paper – in April of 1999 called the Internet Contrarian, in which I say this is going to end very badly, <laughs> can be drawn into uh, the, the the game, if you will, of, uh, of designing and coming up with an Internet-based uh, company, a robo-advisor, well ahead of its uh, time. Uh, this one was different also in that it was an advisor that used uh, strategies uh, in addition to indexes. Um, so it was uh, very much kind of uh, active and passive all put together, and you had the ability to exclude uh, stocks you didn't like. So if you're anti-smoking, you could exclude Philip Morris um, uh, or Altria um, and uh, take the next name on the list. It was pretty slick. Uh, but then, of course, the Internet uh, stock uh, collapse happened in uh, 2000. Um, all the funders uh, folded up their tents and went into the night. Um, and uh, we were, were definitely too early there. Uh, another place where we had an opportunity, um, in fact, I'm writing a, a, a piece for um, my What Works on Wall Street blog um, called uh, Mistakes Were Made and Yes by Me. (laughs) (laughs) Great title. And and, uh, one of them were, we were approached uh, by the people at the American Stock Exchange, I think in 1998 or 99. I'm just trying to confirm dates by finding old calendars. Uh, And what they wanted us to do was uh, create the first kind of active ETFs. And uh, at the time, uh, we thought, huh, don't know what an ETF is, have no idea whether that's going to catch on or not, and really don't have the budget to market that. So thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> so, so we had the opportunity in the late 90s to be the first provider of what would ultimately become active ETFs. And we said, yeah, thanks, but we're going to pass. Um, so th- those would be my those would be my two two kind of better stories uh, that that if we had all the world uh, of time uh, we could uh, really get have some good laughs. Well, Jim, thank you very much for your time today, and thank you for sharing the fruits of your curiosity with the rest of us. You've uh, made a great contribution to the world of financing and investing, and we. Uh, We look forward to that contribution continuing. Thank you very much. Thank you. I've enjoyed it very much. And uh, thank you for having me on as your guest. Anytime. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the i3 Insights Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. Thank you. Thank you.